That's a good question. I feel like I could write a whole essay about that. Today on the program, we have Angie, a friend of mine from university. We talk about her journey into the field of finance and the trials and tribulations of somebody trying to acquire a CFA designation. We also discuss her hobbies in writing and podcasting. Let's start today's show. We'll get back into that conversation. Okay. Later, but I think that's like super fascinating. Yeah. But like when you were coming out of a university, did you at all think about what you were gonna study? And、uh, now that like because I assume that you just thought made up your mind that you're gonna go to university, of course. But did you think about what you're gonna study? Because there are、no. so many subjects. Absolutely, did not think about what I was gonna study. My, I, I just always assumed sciences because those were my best classes. Like my best class in school was chemistry. Right. Yeah. So, how did you end up studying business, or did you study business? Yeah, I did study business because my uncle was like, "You should study business because you talk a lot." But then a lot of my <laughs> friends go into business without knowing for sure a what kind of business they want to do、yeah. and b whether they want to stick to it. I don't. I didn't even know what business was. I had no idea what business was.、So、based on your uncle's suggestion, you went into it. Yeah, and I had a friend, a good friend of mine, who I saw like a brother. He also applied for SFU business and got in. So I was like, I'm just gonna do what he does. Yeah. So you get into school. University is totally different from high school.、Oh, yeah. There's nobody watching you.、Nope. You have to attend your own classes,、mm-hmm. and it's a just a big new network. So how did you find the stuff you felt was meaningful to do inside that? Okay, so how did I find something meaningful to do? I mean, outside of going to class, right? Because like there is、yeah. a meaning in getting grades. Because you know, at least nominally, this is what we're here for is、mm-hmm. to get that paper at the end. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, in order to do that, you had to go through classes. So、yeah. everybody going to class is doing it for that goal. Yeah.、Uh, of course, there are people who are are genuinely interested in the knowledge. Yeah. I I met a couple of students who just really care about finance. I'm like, you're 19 years old, but he was like, yeah, I want to make lots of money through investing. Yeah, I've been reading these books and blogging about it. I'm like, cool, you already got it figured out. Yeah, but that's not most people. No, that was not me. So <laughs> how did you? I mean, outside of just going to class, like, what did you discover and do? Uh, I think I just found that I was very social, and I think that's one of my like coping mechanisms, is when I'm being social, I'm usually in a good mood. Yeah. So I was like in a social club. Um, I just want to be happy. Like. Life sucks. I just want to be happy. And like growing up, my mom's always like, "I just I don't care." Like my mom even said things like, "I don't want you to be a lawyer because it's so stressful. I just want you to have a good life and be happy." So with that frame in mind, how did you end up like picking a path? It still didn't address the looming question of what am I gonna do after university, right? Because we were in the same business program. I was going through all the courses. I didn't want to do any of the concentration work. Yeah. Because I had no idea which one was right for me, and I equally didn't have an interest in any of them. Yeah, same. I didn't. I wasn't interested in anything. I just know that I hated accounting. Okay. Yeah, but I just know that I hated, absolutely hated accounting, and I've always been good at math. And then why did、I've, you hate accounting? Because it's not a real math. You have there are all these rules that you have to abide by.、Um, now I see the value in it. Now that I actually am in finance,、um, literally stumbled into it. So I was in business, and by the time I had to start picking concentrations, and then I started working part time、um, at the bank, 
And then I was just like, you know what? I'll just go into finance. So I just picked finance and started taking finance courses. So I did. There were some courses that I took out of seeking knowledge. So I took East Asian studies. I took heritage Chinese. I took earth science and I took philosophy. So did you just end up finding a job right after school? Yeah, I found a job right after school but it was like i was just like someone's assistant for a while for a year um but i learned quite a bit and i then i did my cfa level one and like it gave me enough exposure to like investments um, cfa is certified a financial analyst chartered financial, chartered yeah, chartered financial analyst it's and like a global certification it's a global certificate designation okay um they people if you say that to someone with a cfa i don't care but if you say that's to someone who has their CFA charter, they'd be like, it's a charter, not a certification. Or it's a designation, not a certification. Gotcha. So it's um, like a certain prestige around there's the profession. There's profession. quite a bit of prestige around the uh, profession. Is it because it's hard to get? Yeah. It's hard to get. It's a really challenging exam. You have to, you're basically cramming an entire year's worth of coursework into one full day exam. So the, the work itself is actually not that difficult if you just do it. Um, but the hard part is the exam. Like by the time it's like four o'clock in the afternoon and I still have an hour to go in the exam, like my brain is tired. Mm. It's like, it's tiring. Um, but there's, there's a lot of prestige with the, with the charter and, um, someone with the charter is considered, it's, it's considered by a lot of employers as like the equivalent of a master's. Yeah. So you saw that as a viable career option yeah Were you super like gung-ho about hey I, this is so cool or was this like this is good to get because it's going to advance my career in the fi- field of finance yeah it's the latter one because i was really miserable at my first job out of school um i had a really nice boss though like he was really nice and he was when i quit he's like yeah i know this job is like you're too smart for this job anyway um i just hated that job like i absolutely hated it because it's it was in wealth management it was not challenging it was in wealth management just like wiping rich people's asses all day and i just absolutely hated it because it's not even really about what you know it's about how you kiss ass gotcha so it's about managing the relationships yeah it's relationship management yeah i hated it so i was just looking for ways so to you, get out right and then one of the gateway was to do the cfa thing so yep. you got your level one yep it's a lot of hard work you had to study a lot no, I didn't. But you still got it because you were just like your technique of cramming. My technique of cramming only worked for CFA level one. I failed CFA level two twice okay. because it does not cram. You cannot cram for CFA. And that's when I learned how to like study properly. Properly. So you're telling me through all this time, even going through university, yes. you did not apply the proper technique that you realized today to studying. Yes. But you still managed to get by and do yeah. well in school. Uh, I did well, average. I guess. In good enough. Good enough. Good enough. Right. I did not do well. Like I would not be telling people my GPA because it was not good. <laughs> but I still like. Right. I mean, you still got internships. You still got like yeah. opportunities. Yeah. You still, still got, got your paper at the end. Yeah. Exactly. I got my paper. Yeah. So up until so I failed in 2017. So up until 2017, I never properly well, studied. 2017 is already like a few years into your career. Yeah. So were you, what were you doing? So you left that job. Yeah. What did I you went go to, next? I went to a asset management firm and I worked as an analyst. Because you already had the CFA level one. Yeah. That was a big, your yeah. evidence of your ability. Yeah. 
and then they were like hey Angie's great let's let's have her yeah I think what got me in was like they the the company did this trial it's kind of like an intelligence test mm. uh, to test my ability to process like numbers and words and see how well you do and yeah I did it online first and then I did it in person and they were kind of blown away by my score like the HR person was like Nobody has ever finished the exam in the allotted time. Wow. It was just meant like one of them was mental math. Another one was like something to do with words. And it's just to, supposed to like test your ability to process information, I think. So wait, so like you, you were at this job and uh, you got in this new job. Yeah. And were you more feeling like, hey, this is way better? Yeah. For like about six months. And then I got bored. Right. Yeah. And then you got another job. No, uh, after six months, I was like, you know what? I will stay here until I finish my CFA exams. Like but all three levels. All three levels. So I took a break from the first one. Uh, so so the first one I took in like a December and I didn't want to jump into the second one right away because I was looking for jobs at the time. So I rolled my level two in 2017 and I failed because that was when I learned my lesson about not cramming. Mm-hmm. So anyway was disappointed but was like whatever i'll try again next year so on my third try i passed with like flying colors congratulations i mean it took me three tries but yeah i passed <laughs> i mean that's still worth celebrating right yeah it's it was i was very excited when i passed. easy by any means <laughs> no it wasn't because every time i had to study it was like six months of no life really yeah. six months yeah but you were still at the same company yeah i was uh for the third one i was at a different company <laughs> Yeah. Still in still in finance. Okay. Um, I jumped to the consulting side. What's the difference? Uh, so consulting side, you're helping the clients not get ripped off by asset managers. When you're working at an asset manager, they want to charge the client. They want to get as much money as possible, right? Mm. Yeah. So you just would you say you fell into this industry finance, and you it was good enough of a career choice that you felt like hey you know what i can stick to it yeah i think like i steered my boat towards this path and it was like once i steered into this path there's so many different choices and i just decided to stick with it makes sense yeah makes sense uh when do you know you want to switch a company when things are just like not working out the possible like if there's no career progression like more capabilities or more, more scope respons- yeah more Respon- scope more responsibility or just getting promoted yeah okay um no recognition um lack of pr- lack of like salary bumps mm. stuff like that yeah it just got really bad there so there was also a lot of toxic people so i just wanted to get away from that culture mm. that makes a lot of sense because like you don't want to be around people who don't um spread positivity and mutually supportive because mm-hmm. uh, that's one of the hallmarks of uh, you being stuck in somewhere that's like not good for your, you know, both career growth and also your just well-being. Right? Yeah. Um, but I think like actually jumping from job to job, if you do it in a strategic way in terms of your overall scope, responsibility, and yeah. also your income, yeah. your monetary yeah. benefits is actually the best way to to correct to do it to get yes. you know, to a level where you think. Uh, it, you're comfortable or whatever. That's right. So I have done that. Like every time I jumped a job, I went up in yeah in scope, in prestige, and in salary. How did you identify 
those opportunities because like there's tons of jobs out there so how do you say okay this job is interesting versus this one honestly when i was at that second firm after graduating um i was just like i want to be an analyst i want to see what it's like to not talk to people and just like talk to numbers all day so i just literally went on like indeed and just looked for analyst jobs and then i saw this one job it's not even like people are like oh my god an analyst but i wasn't even in like pre-trade i was in post-trade analytics what's the difference pre-trade you're like oh what should we buy and you do analysis it's all analyzing stuff but pre-trade just has a lot more prestige in the industry because you get to make decisions post-trade is less exciting because you're analyzing what happened rather than what you think is going to happen trying to predict the market yeah you try to predict the market that's right and then post you're just trying to be like how did they do like how did these pre-trade people do yeah. But you're still making recommendations based on whatever you analyze. You no, not in post trade. You just you just give them the numbers. <clears throat> it's kind of you're kind of measuring their performance. And now that I'm on the consulting side, it's like both. Which one do you enjoy or do you, is it a mix of everything? Uh, I like what I'm doing now. I think it's a uh, it's not boring. There's a little bit of everything all the time. I just like the environment more. The firm that I work for now first of all it's like really small mm-hmm. and all the partners used to work at like big big firms like the founding partners they used to be the managing director of these really big investment consulting like multinationals wow. they were like they hated what it was turning into because it was like way too corporate everything was becoming really automated um so they were just like nah like we don't want to do this we want to still do our practice very like human to human so then they open up their own firm they set up their shop in vancouver yeah were they was their businesses all based in vancouver before or did they uh yeah it's all like canadian i think it's like western canada western canada yeah because toronto has all the business on that side right gotcha yeah Yeah. toronto is like technically they call it the wall street of canada the bay street right so how is that environment like working in like a country where so much of our business and commerce and life is tied to our neighbors down south. Is that even a factor or is it yeah, just like... It is a factor. Okay. Yeah. So how is the industry here? Because people, when people think of finance, a lot of people who don't work in the industry automatically think of Wall Street and a f- yeah. maybe a few hubs, right? Tokyo yeah. and somewhere else. Um, and and well, London. And- well, finance is so broad. People, When people say finance, they all automatically think Wall Street, but that's just... America and Wall Street. America and Wall Street. There's finance literally everywhere. everywhere. Yeah. Um, it's so broad. And the people who are like, there's two different types of people. When people ask me, what do you do? I, and I usually say, I work in finance. And they'll either be like, that's so broad. Like, what do you do in finance? Mm-hmm. Then I'm like, ah, they know what they're talking about. If I say finance and someone goes, ooh, like smarty pants. I'm like, this person doesn't know what they're talking about. <laughs> this person is a dumbass. <laughs> <laughs> Like if somebody works at a car dealership and like does loans for people, they're technically they work in finance, you know, like the right. finance is just so broad. Like somebody who's a bank teller, that's uh, I guess that's more like retail, but it's still kind of like finance. I don't they have know. to have some financial knowledge to be able to do They have to be able work. to count for right. sure, you know. Right. I mean, they have to have the concept of debit, credit, what is exactly. a loan, what is a mortgage. What, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, basically. exactly. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's just it's so Okay, so let me narrow it down. So so in finance, there's like there's like Wall Street. And when people think Wall Street, they think investment bankers. Okay. So people it's like traders who like do that stuff. And people just think like 
Wolf of Wall Street. Well, that's very 70s, right? Very Today, 70s. Everything's automated. Everything's automated. Best finance movie of all time, The Big Short, because the general concept is that finance is a scam or Wall Street is a scam or like these all these complicated structured products are a scam. And I completely agree. I mean, they do have a huge point, which is that a lot of real economic activities is only a fraction of what our economy is today. And so much of it is the derivative of everything that's outside of it. It's literally a game that we've structured and yep. made it legal. Exactly. And people are just making money off of it. Yeah, exactly. My coworker, he uh, he was never in finance. He studied mathematics in the UK. And uh, he used to work, uh, he was a sports analyst. He literally analyzed the odds of what a team would win. And he would calculate the odds so that people can bet on it. Because again, it's a game, right? Uh, yeah, so like here in like capitalism is a game. <laughs> um, so how do you reconcile that with your own values? Of oh, like that's why I've struggled. Ah, oh, that's a good question. That's why I struggled with it a long time. I like um, after my friend passed away, um, it was a really sad, a sad death because he took his own life. And it really made me question, like, what the fuck am I doing with my life? Am I even doing this for me? Am I living my life for other people? And then I was like, yes, I am living my life for other people. And it just did not coincide with my values. And I really value this was something that I talked to my therapist about is my values are like justice and just being a good person. Those are like my core values and enjoying life. <laughs> and my current job, um, we what I really like about their philosophy on all this is um, we try to make sure that our clients are not being ripped off by those guys who are trying to make this whole thing a game and trying to make as much money as possible. And yeah, and that aligns more with my values, right? Like we're using the knowledge that we have about the industry to help these people who don't know because again, a lot of finance is about asymmetric information somebody with more information than you will be able to capitalize on that than somebody who doesn't have that information. And we're just trying to even out the playing field a little bit. So a lot of our clients are like pension plans, which nowadays usually only apply for blue collar and government teachers, you know, and foundations like hospital foundations, whatever, and First Nation trusts. And these people like, they're the really, really big ones will have their own investment committee that, you know, goes out there and figure out how to manage them, like how to get other people to manage the money. But the smaller ones, like they don't have that kind of budget or capacity to, to have an in-house like investment team. So then they would hire us and we would help them make sure they don't get ripped off. Right. So you are basically the people who ensure that they have the necessary information and knowledge to be successful yeah. in terms of preserving their, not just their uh, wealth and resources, but also uh, so that they have a sustainable long, long-term way of uh, generating wealth from the system yeah. so that they can serve whatever the community and causes they are. Exactly. They because a lot of these foundations and pension plans and trusts, they have this huge amount of money. Yes, they do. They have hundreds of millions of dollars or in some cases only like 20, 30 million dollars. But they need that money to last forever. And the money that's generated from this 
bulk of money is what's running the programs that they do and it's what's paying their pensioners and it's what's yeah what's being paid out to communities and building communities far up north right so if they're paying their managers a lot of money that means it's less money for their own people mm-hmm. so that aligns more with my own values and it's funny because there was uh someone some canadian finance guy wrote this like scathing article saying that investment consultants are the scum of the earth which i find hilarious because they're like oh you're charging your clients money to tell them what managers to pick to manage their money mm-hmm. so like what are you even doing really like they a lot of a lot of people that are like a lot of the managers think that consultants are evil they think that we're here to make their life harder but yeah we are here to make their lives harder because they can't just take advantage of these clients right of course the clients who are more sophisticated don't need to go through us and that's fine we're not competing for their business anyway um so it's just funny that there's like this guy out there that's like oh like consultants are the scum of the earth it's very strong language it is very strong language well i don't think he actually wrote that but the gist of the article was basically saying that consultants are useless and that they don't add value to our industry i guess it's because uh there are so many pitfalls and dangers and risks and it's uh it's dealing with uh a lot of uh uh, important assets where you know once you lose it it's going to be devastating for a lot of a lot of people that's right so this is why because the industry is so difficult and so not transparent yeah where a field like yours yours would exist because mm-hmm. otherwise people will be struggling yeah and to be fair like the consultants that he's talking about those big corporations the the ones that my partners left they have pivoted towards just focusing on making money for themselves so yes they have become just as bad but then they still have to deliver value right because yeah, that's why they're losing clients. Because they're not delivering enough value. Yeah, and some like there are there are some clients who just doesn't like who don't like those big multinational consultants. They just prefer the smaller shops because it's more like humans dealing with humans right. rather than humans dealing with a machine. We're kind of like financial advising, but for institutions. Mm-hmm. So, so clients will be like. So we investigate the manager. We're like, we really don't think this manager is doing their job properly. Like they're taking all this money from you, but they don't actually offer you anything that's unique or anything that's like valuable on the marketplace. You can go go buy a fucking index fund and save and do better. save hundreds of thousands of dollars a year and probably do better. You know, like yeah. that's what like we we literally have advised some of our clients to go into index funds because we're like your allocation to like this specific market is so small there's no point in you paying this manager like one percent to manage your money and the thing about like asset management is like if the manager does really poorly they still get paid they do really well they still get paid and it's a commission right too it's a percentage percentage it's usually like one percent or of the proceeds no of the entire asset under management that's messed up 1% is really high though 1% is for like um, for like private funds like real estate infrastructure yeah even if they lose money even if they lose money like into the yeah even if they lose even if your money even if your portfolio got like hit with negative 30% the manager is still gonna make 
a, a percent of whatever is amount like yeah the, that one percent will be lower because you just lost 30 percent but they still get a percent so no matter how the market is doing and no matter how well they're doing they get paid out that's messed up and that's why people hate on wall street because <laughs> so, they just keep making money so i guess can i summarize in saying that you can reckon with that whole ethical moral value aspect of all this because you are working at a company that is trying to at least mitigate or uh, de-risk some of the inherent bad things for vulnerable clients. Yeah, for vulnerable clients, I say at least we're trying to make sure they're not being exploited by the fact that they're not sophisticated clients, right? Because in the whole game of finance, it's just who can outsmart who. And it's all a game. Yeah, I mean, I don't, I don't disagree. And like, and these pension fund, like these pension funds, it's not like they want to play this game. But if they don't play, then their money is not going to do anything. So of course they gotta play because that's what everyone else is playing, and they gotta make sure that their pensioners, their workers, get paid out when they retire because they're working in these like really difficult blue collar jobs. And you know, like it's just they can't not play because this is how the society works. Yeah, this is like the fundamental question of our time, right?、Yeah. If you think the society is unjust or wrong in certain aspect of it, how do you actually go about and conduct your own life in the sense that you're not contributing to the problem? I mean, that's the question I ask myself. Which、mm-hmm. is like, if I know working on some product will make the society more polarized, more、uh, sort of stuck in their own bubbles, people the fundamental. Reality cannot be established. Should I still work on that? And obviously, it's no. But then, so much of our my personal investment in my experience, my knowledge, my ability to feed myself and survive as an individual、mm-hmm. is tied up to me having knowledge in that industry. So, how do I justify my actions through that? Because a, I don't want to be starving to death or homeless or something <laughs> like that. But b, I don't want to necessarily contribute to the destruction of humankind. Yeah. So. I mean, humans. I I tout these things, but then I'm still like I've spent so much money, thousands of dollars, from Amazon. I don't know. This this is the it is the ultimate question, and that's why philosophers have been. But then we're at a point where it's not no longer just philosophical. Like this is literally、yeah. gonna make or break the entire future of organized human behavior. Right, we can go back to the Stone Ages, and there's a chance that might happen. I, risk of I, I climate change.、So. You don't think so? I no. think so. Here's why: risk of climate change, risk of nuclear war, the fallout of not being able to establish a reality. I think there's. I don't know if it's high, but I think there's a possibility that、uh, organized human behavior, maybe not in our lifetime, but in a few hundred years, is seriously at risk. Oh, in a few hundred years, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, you don't have to answer that if you. I feel like I need some weed. To like、yeah. talk about that, it is legal in the place we're talking. Yes, British Columbia. So、um, it's very legal. I haven't partaken in that activity in a in a while. Yeah, I don't know.、Uh, okay, so let's. <sighs> yeah, totally understand your conundrum. Yeah, I I think we're at an impasse where we've discovered the fundamental question of、um, the age we live in. So let's shift gears. Yeah, because if you start going there, like I don't know if you how much of. Uh, my podcast you've listened to, but Christy always has to pull me back from these like philosophical perspectives. She's like, let's 
take a step back. And I'm like, sorry, sorry. I'm just getting lost in my like. <laughs> I mean, 90% of my conversation outside of uh, regular trivial stuff is, is this yeah. with my friends. Yeah. Literally, this is what we talk about. Yeah. And different people have different perspectives, but yeah. yeah, we it's what I it's what gets me going, right? It's the fundamental reality we live in, right? Everything we see around us is constructed by humans. Yep. Every single institution, whether it's physical or something we imagined, right? Structures of government like these pieces of paper that we use and we call money, right? Like now it's all digital and so just like yep. zeros and ones inside, you know, your yep. wire literally, that's it. And but like all, all of this can go away because, you know, nature does not operate necessarily in this way, right? Mm-hmm. You just see atoms and carbon. That's just literally how things are made up. Yeah. So even though we think this is permanent and here to say because this is the reality we know, it doesn't necessarily mean it will be. So I agree anyway, it's just like me thinking beyond my pay grade it, for sure. Whatever is going to happen, like it's going to happen anyway. So do you think so? Well watch TV. You think so? Yeah. It's completely out of It's destiny? Control. Yeah. Not destiny, but it's just like... Yeah, and you're saying it's the scale is so big that individually we can't change things. No, that's not... I actually don't agree with that. I actually do think that individually we can change things because collective consciousness starts from individual consciousness and individual consciousness is usually... Like, we think we have original ideas, but we don't. It's just your own spin on a collective idea and... But then, but then the whole collective idea is made up of individual ideas. And, yeah. And like, it's just, I, I don't think that, I don't want to say that no one can change anything, so you shouldn't want to change. But I'm saying that like things evolve systemat- systemically and it's like you said, it's not going to happen in our lifetime. We can only do what we can do in our little part of the world. Mm. But it's collectively, it still doesn't matter what we do yeah cool speaking of collective you participate in the thing called <laughs> culty collective yeah that's right what is that about so culty collective was started by a friend of mine it started here in vancouver it as a like a grassroots kind of thing now it's blown up quite a bit um but it's basically like a platform to share stories um ideas opinions uh from and from the perspective of asian millennials for asian millennials so it's not meant to in north america in north america but also just beyond as well it's not just north america but it's primarily north american because most of the writers are from north america it's not a it's not meant to explain ourselves to other people it's meant for us to have a conversation within our community the conversation within yeah, conversation within this little community we call the Asian Millennial Diaspora. Cool. Is that something you do outside of your work? Yes. You also have a podcast. Yeah. My podcast is called We Don't Tell Mom, hosted by Christy and myself. It's about growing up. We, we You know what? It's about a little bit about everything, but we describe it as a podcast about that we secretly want to talk about, which a lot of it involves mental health, actually and emotional health and just taboo subjects that are usually considered hush-hush in the Asian community. And uh, you can find us on ba- all the platforms. Based on what I've been hearing, that sounds like a topic that is really under-discussed, That's right? right. Mm-hmm. So I applaud that, I applaud your effort. I have listened to a few episodes and have found it enlightening and entertaining. Keep up the good work. Thank you. Great, so on that note, I think we should uh, conclude this also insightful episode. So thanks, Angie. And uh, we'll see you next time.